This week on the 30th edition of the Twin Geekcast, our intrepid podcasters explore Elton John's The Road to El Dorado. We also got news from Can, Sith, and we have Aladdin at your box office. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Both. 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 Both is good. Palm d'Or. Palm d'Or. There you go. Yeah, so we so, got that right. You have to say it like the pronunciation, though. Palm d'Or. Palm d'Or. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you plan on keeping all of this in. Yeah, it's all going in. Um, Perfect. Are you ready to start here? I, I, I thought we had started. I was talking like we started. Oh. Anyway, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on Okja in comparisons, you know, because that's one of the... I already forgot how to pronounce his name. Damn it. <laughs> Joan, John, June, 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 Bong, Ho June, Bong. Ho Bong. Uh, anyway, two O's, which makes an O sound. <laughs> June, Ho Bong. Congrats on the um, Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival. We're, we're very proud of you, and we're figuring out how to pronounce your name. Yes, we're figuring out how to pronounce everything this time, so it's not just you. Please don't feel bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's taking the victory for uh, the Parasite for... You know, probably the most prestigious award in film. I wouldn't call Oscars prestigious any longer, so that yeah, just might it, get my side. Well, and right, and, and obviously, you know, there's issues well with sometimes where the palm is given away to films that don't necessarily deserve it, or, you know, Cannes is also, you know, not necessarily the, the end-all, be-all of awards, like, but it's certainly there isn't more, anymore, right? more prestigious, <laughs> pr- prestigious than um, Os- the Oscars, I would definitely say. Oh yeah, and it, it seems to side more for art films, and it also it's not American based. Like I mean, obviously you're in France, but a lot of international films in competition, and we have a a, a South Korean one here, so we uh, wanted to look at some South Korean films, including the, the filmmaker's own work. Yeah, because especially in the last fifteen years or so, South Korean the film industry has really started to boom even more, and putting out some really really great stuff. Even just last year, we had. A huge burning. success with burning. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Burning's incredible. Um, and uh, once you get to that Miles Davis moment, man, that gave me chills. Uh, have you seen Burning? You know, I haven't yet. It's on my okay. list, too. I think it was supposed to pop up on Netflix, like, recently, but I haven't checked. Yeah, I think I it's on My that. Netflix accounts in forever. <laughs> yeah, since Criterion Channel, neither of us have opened it. But it is, it is on there now. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll have to move that up. I also got to check out, because I know... Um, Juno Bonk's other film that I've, I've heard lots of recommendation for, Memories of Murder. That one's on Amazon, and I'm planning on seeing that one this week because everyone keeps telling me to. I haven't seen that one yet, but uh, I've seen some of the director's past work. Uh, Snowpiercer, after after Under the Skin, it's my favorite film of uh, 2014. That's interesting that you love it so much. I, I really enjoyed it, but... Uh, you know, I have that problem where sometimes we get big, you know, concept sci-fi films where things kind of fall apart when you think about them a little too much. Like hmm. the, I like the idea of the train and how it, you yeah. know, kind of is everything, but I'm like, this doesn't make complete sense. <laughs> no, it only really works as allegory. And as long as you only take it metaphorically and as allegory for what society, what would happen to society if it were packed onto a train and, hmm. uh, you got to, uh, visualize the class systems as a fragments of a train then i think it works that way but uh literally no right well then sometimes it's a little obvious with its metaphor there and then oh, uh, yeah. i'm not i'm not a big fan of ending like there's too many films where you know you get up to the ending and it turns out that you got to have a confrontation with 
Ed Harris specifically, who's like the mastermind <laughs> behind everything. Like this is not like even the third or fourth time this happens. So. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I, I I like it. Uh, I, I remember being initially shocked when they were like eating humans and stuff as the part of their uh, you know meal, like broken down humans, which is weirdly also a theme of Under the Skin. So that was a mm-hmm. weird year for me. Well, it's a common kind of sci-fi thing. You know, I, I think I, I favor Soylent Green just a little bit more in yeah. terms of doing that same idea. But, yeah, Snowpiercer is a very classic uh, dystopian sci-fi film and, mm-hmm. you know, definitely worth checking out. Uh, I do have to see more of the director's, you know, specifically Korean work. But what I have seen, I've seen a lot of, or at least a couple of another prolific Korean filmmaker's um, work, and that's uh, Chanwook Park. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. He's done a lot of big things. The biggest one, of course, every you know, uh, you know, young boy out there knows at least about old boy. That was kind of the big yeah. thing, and probably where this whole Korean craze really kicked off with back in two thousand three. But just recently, he also made you know the Handmaiden for Amazon. Handmaiden, yeah, Handmaiden's really special too. So. Very yeah, fantastic. Um, I also, yeah, I I'd highly recommend his work as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think The Handmaiden especially is a really great one. I wasn't expecting all the kind of twists and turns it takes, and it's a it's a really big, like, chapter-esque story, which I really enjoy. Yeah, we could say that, like, the Korean cinema's become, like, the new Hong Kong in some way. Uh, yeah, have, I definitely think so. Uh, back to uh, Bong's work, have you seen uh, Okja yet? Uh, Okja, yeah, that one, the one that he did for Netflix, that was his most recent film before Parasite. I um, hated it. Yeah, I don't know if I hated it as much as it sounds like you hated it, but I definitely have a considerable disdain for it. I mean, firstly, I'm an omnivore, so I don't care. And secondly, um, it just it feels like it's it's just all corn. It's not it's not funny or interesting or man, I, I just it just bores me to death. I don't care about this big, and he looks like shit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a it's a weird and very ham-fisted movie like i mean we mentioned snowpiercer it's kinda, i get it yeah it's it's kind of heavy and snowpiercer is heavy in its message but okja is like severely <laughs> heavy in its message and i it's, mean good i mean you just look at the poster it's just like a pig with a factory on him I mean, what do you think it means yeah and it's there's so much kookiness and craziness going on i think the only person that really sells all that is like tilda swinton but she's great yeah. in everything but like Jake Gyllenhaal's way oh too over the top in it. He's he's way too far in, and he he knows that he's too far in. Mm-hmm. I, I'll say this: I like Paul Dano in it. I thought he was interesting. Like it was a different turn for him as an actor in it, but he didn't it get to probably, do much. It was probably my least favorite film of 2017. So. I I can't blame you, especially just just by number of poop jokes in it alone. <laughs> there are so many. Oh my god! It's I I could not believe like it just keep happening there's so many poop jokes and they're just not poop jokes aren't funny they're not funny I mean, I mean i think i i think i get it you want us to know that the animals were eating poop but we're not like eating their poop we're just eating the animals so i don't wow. really care it's it, it was not good but it's nice to see that he's bouncing back here with parasite and yeah. making a much much bigger success yeah i hope it'll be great uh, uh in the meantime i've also been covering sip which is the they call it the largest uh, festival in the United States because it, it goes for the longest amount of time, I guess. Mm-hmm. How long does it go for exactly? Uh, it goes for over a month. So I've been doing this for about three weeks and we're going into <laughs> June. Um, mm-hmm. So so I've been committed to it for like, it's about a month and a half of work for me personally. But uh, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into any kind of festival, you know. 
Uh, it's right. nice when they actually get like the full length of time so you can spread out your viewing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's nice that you're getting so much of, you know, coverage here for the site and everything. You've been doing all sorts of festival work all year, but SIF is a real big one, and it's nice to see all the content, especially, again, local stuff. Nice having you in, up in the Seattle area, checking out things. Yeah, um, it's cool because SIF's spread out. It takes place, like, downtown, uh, at, like, the Egyptian Cinema, the Uptown Cinema, AMC, and it's also in Kirkland and Bellevue, so it's, like, a, the whole um, South Seattle and West Side, I could... You know, I could get to things. Mm -hmm. uh, um, is there any big standouts for you this time? Uh, I can't talk too much about some of them, but like the <laughs> like the best one that I've seen is uh, nonfiction, which I could only say a little bit about. It's um, as Juliet Binoche, just like my favorite movie of the year, High Life. Um, uh, it's funny that it's like a one and two for me have her in it, and it's mm -hmm. just another uh, essays movie. I don't know if you're very familiar, but uh, a lot of good social commentary and uh, interesting. Stuff on the book publishing world in there. Um, Monos has the um, has the um, the gal who composed uh, Under the Skin doing the soundtrack. That has a really really killer score, and it's about uh, kids that are up with a sacrificial cow in the mountains of Colombia. I'd highly recommend that. That does sound really interesting, actually. Um, other than that, I've been doing a lot of local interest pieces. Uh, some on fishing habitats you can check out on the site and. Uh, Lynch, former Seahawk, outspoken rights activist. Mm -hmm. I like having the, like that kind of very local, specifically Pacific Northwest stuff here <laughs> yeah. for the site. I think it uh, gives us a lot of personality and culture. Last night I watched a cool silent film you might be into, As the Earth Turns. It hasn't been viewed in about 80 years, so that, that was cool. It has a lot of triple dissolves and miniature work that was interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, so I'm that, uh, Exciting that they're playing some some old signs of would they they find that one somewhere? Do you have any background on that? <laughs> I I know that a local composers agreed to score it and that it was never released. The guy went ended up going on to work with Disney and uh, he won an Academy Award for a documentary made about Michelangelo. So it's an interesting guy. Guy um they have some scenes shot in Gas Gasworks Park when it was like a actual like gasification plant. So that's really interesting to me. Uh, oh, so it's like a local, local silent film as well. That's oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a oh. Seattle guy that ended up winning awards, and um, like even pre Citizen Kane, this is independent film outside Hollywood, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, and in having that within the Seattle area, uh, I think it makes it even more special. I love hearing about all the you know cultural stuff around our city there. It's also about uh, well, it's a uh, thirty-eight, uh, nineteen thirty-eight, right? So it's right before World War Two began, like a year preceding, and then. Uh, it's about the imminent war that Americans will have in Europe and um, the impending uh, kind of fascist-controlled environmental danger that's coming uh, to mm -hmm. humanity, uh, coming by some dictator. So a lot of foreshadowing for shit we're dealing with. Well, that sounds really interesting and uh, definitely a, a, a nice highlight of it. It shows you the kind of variety you can get at these kind of festivals. Yeah, I mean, uh, other than that, uh, just a lot of really cool new stuff. Uh, a lot of stuff you might have heard of, like, uh, Dick Long, a lot of A24 stuff. Um, there's a, a lot of stuff I can't talk about, actually. <laughs> right. Well, we look forward to a lot of those coming once uh, the embargoes and all that lift off them. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it. We'll talk about it once it all ends. How's that? Yeah, that sounds good to me. We'll go more in depth there. Um, until then, we have uh, stuff that you could actually go see at, at wherever you're located at the box office. Yeah, uh, we got our top ten this week. Uh, starting here at the bottom, number ten, we got Long Shot still. Um, long shot's fun. I, I like it. I went back and watched some of the um, 
I went back and watched Superbad specifically this weekend. I've kind of been craving old Seth Rogen, like the cop he plays in that film is so funny. Superbad is probably like the best um, version of Seth Rogen comedy that we'll ever get. <laughs> it's I, it's a pretty great, like it's one of my all-time favorite teen comedies. Yeah, it's good. I, I like that. I think it's the only moment Seth Rogen's ever sober in a film is like when he shows up as a cop and then uh, very quickly you can see he gets stoned. And uh, that's like the only 10 minutes of sober Seth Rogen we'll ever get on film. Right. <laughs> It's good. Um, I like I, I like Longshot too. If you like Superbad and that kind of Seth Rogen, this is the same thing. Mm-hmm. But, also, uh, you think, I, I think Seth Rogen is at least consistent in his comedy. If you enjoy <laughs> his comedy, you'll enjoy most all of them in some facet. I mean, if sometimes you just want to hear Seth Rogen laugh, it's good right. for the soul. <laughs> it's it's such a unique and interesting laugh. Some people find it obnoxious. I'm endeared by it. It's so endearing to me. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still amazed, shocked, and probably for the last time that at number nine, The Intruder still <laughs> made a bunch more money than Longshot. Uh, I, God willing, it's gone next week and Longshot gets a bump somehow, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that it's stuck by Longshot one place ahead for the entire week. You know, everyone it, involved with the production must be mad. I, I imagine. I mean, I, I'm still baffled by it. Like, what was it? Like, three weeks in a row, it was consistently. And it's not, like, a significant amount. It's just always, like, right above it each week. <laughs> and I like that. Um, I I feel like Dennis Quaid's enough of a nut on his own that we don't even need his movie version of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. But hopefully the last time we'll have to see it. Because I, I don't have anything to say about the film specifically. No, I, I don't want to go see it. I thought about mm-hmm. it now. Uh, number eight, we have The Hustle still. Which is also perplexing to me. And I don't know anything like this. Uh, the next two films, I don't, I don't know anything about. So. Right. I think we've mentioned them briefly, but I'll just, you know, we'll keep scooting past them here. Because Seven's a Dog's Journey, which last <laughs> week we covered very in-depth how the dog cinematic universe works. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's a little convoluted, but you know, it's all there. Yeah, this is part of the Universal series. And then there's also a Sony series that had a film earlier this year. That's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just it's it's a dog movie. You want to see a dog yeah. movie? Go see a dog movie. That's it. I took my dog on his first vacation this week. It was excellent. Ah, yeah. Did he did he get to run around a lot or anything? Yeah, I'm starting to trust him off leash. Although he uh, he loves to run away, and uh, he was astray before, so I'm still very nervous about it. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to be careful because the, the dogs are really good. They're not like cats. There's plenty of instances where you know, back when I was with my mom or whatever, a dog would would get out, and we'd, right. we'd spend, like, the afternoon looking for him around the town. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. yeah. So be care- be careful with him. Good to let him off the leash a little bit, but always keep him in sight. Yeah, um, yeah, my first dog was a, always a runner, so I, I'm very cautious with him. Right, well, you gotta be. Anyway, <laughs> at number six here, we have uh, Booksmart. It's a new release this week. I really love Booksmart. Like we were talking about Superbad, I think it's actually a smarter movie, a book smarter movie. But um, it's directed by Olivia Wilde, uh, which is uh, fun. I like her. I like the girl in it. She's uh, the sister of Jonah Hill, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about wh- what the film is specifically? Uh, I didn't actually uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's Superbad, but the girls are smart, and they realize that they studied all throughout high school, and everyone else that studied but also partied got into colleges too, so shouldn't they go to party? Mm. That's the okay. whole premise. I see, so yeah, very, very kind of super bad ESE, but yeah. more in the college setting. Uh, no, no, it's just like the last day of high school. They oh, realized okay. that they didn't get a party, 
and they have to go party now, and uh, their goal fulfilled that one day, so they so they don't have to say I went through high school and didn't do anything fun. Okay, I see. Cool. So it's, like we said, reverse kind of super bad, yeah. where it is kind of the nerds, you know, rising up to to join the party culture and all that. Yeah, um, and they're not even. I like how I like how thoroughly they're nuance they're presented because they're not just like nerds like they have personalities and interests and they're not lame at all like they're not they're never like stuttering or antisocial. Mm-hmm. um caitlin deaver and uh uh beanie fieldstein who's uh jonah hill's sister it's funny because jonah hill got his start in super bad and it feels like she's really cute man she's she's really cute funny you know what i mean mm-hmm. like uh she shows up on screen you're just like man that girl's endearing and i hope to see her in a lot of comedies now well, that's good. That's promising to see. Um, and she, when she has her toothy smile, she looks just like Jonah Hill. It's really sweet. So. <laughs> I guess it really gave you the super bad vibes then, huh? Absolutely. And if you like super bad, I, I don't want to call it like uh, lesbian teen super bad, but it, uh, it, it'll it fulfill that need. Yeah, well, that's good to see. Good to have a, you know more comedies in here. It's always nice to have throughout the year. I mean, uh, I'm totally four. going to rewatch this one, so I, I, I'd recommend getting out to it if you can. All right. Well, at number five here, we have uh, Breakburn, which uh, I have not heard too many great things about. <laughs> um, it it ends with uh, uh, Billy Eyelash's uh, bad guy. Um, I, I don't know what you want me to say. It's like reverse Superman. There's not much. That's all there is to the movie, which is weird to have only one line. That, that That's the entire thing. Yeah, that is kind of a shame. It seems, you know, they just had this one idea, which is not an uncommon idea to have. It's not like this idea <laughs> hasn't been weird. done a bunch, but yeah. Like, like in a time where we have like Deadpool in the box office, we know about antiheroes and stuff, and we're kind of blending them in. We we know about this. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it looks like they did the the smart thing, though, because it looks like this was a really small budget. It's already made its mm-hmm. budget back, it looks oh, like, good. just on opening weekend here. I mean, um, even if I'm just okay with movies, I want them to be successful unless they're Disney or something. You know? Yeah, you just want to see the world burn with them. <laughs> as long as it's not a big corporation that I'm, I feel angry about, then I, I feel okay. Yeah, um, well, we have this innate sense to always want to root for the underdog, so yeah. Absolutely, uh, and this is a total underdog film. It's produced by James Gunn, his first production, really first work that came out since uh, uh, Guardians, um, mm-hmm. or since it- uh, being booted. I believe it was written by his brothers as well. So yeah, it was written by his brother and his cousin. Um, so it's a it's a family affair. It feels like an old trauma film. Uh, there's a scene where the girl gets uh, one of the girls gets a, a piece of glass in her eye. I'm not very good with eyes in films. I don't like oh, them to yeah. be touched at all. So uh, that gave me a, I had a hard time with that bit. <laughs> right. Well, everyone's got that one thing that they definitely don't want to see, you know, in film and whatnot or or whatever. Like that it's, one body part that you just can't handle being sliced or whatever. I mean, just just makes fun of me because there's this bit in, like, I think it's Toy Story 2 where they have to touch their eye or something and I, I start freaking out every time. She's like, <laughs> oh, man, you, you can't you can't even do it in this. I'm, I'm guessing then that means you can't handle contacts. <sighs> no, I have contacts in now. I, I don't mind them. So, so you can touch your eye to put contacts in, but you can't handle watching characters touch their eyes in a movie, in an animated movie nonetheless. I'm getting, like, faint just thinking about people touching <laughs> someone else's eyes. It's bad. So, so, it's... so is it someone else's eyes, or is it someone's eye? Like, they can touch oh, their no. own eyes? Uh, people can touch their own eyes. I don't really care, but uh, if, if there's, like, a huge piece of glass stuck in it or something, then I, I don't oh, handle yeah. it very well. Well, of course. Like, if there's a 
giant piece of glass from any extremity. That's not fun. Um, I don't feel like uh, I don't feel like what's this called? Burning? Right burning? Right, right burn? Right burn? <laughs> what's this movie I saw? Uh, I I don't feel like it really handles the horror very well. I feel like it it has one tone, so you don't really get like the relief, and then you don't get to like build up to the next scare. The dude's just bad. He just hates everyone. Mm, it should have been in the nineties or something. It's a shame because you would think that. You know, it'd be a nice gateway to blending the superhero genre with other things, you know, like a superhero horror film. That sounds like an interesting new thing, but this is yeah. obviously kind of just the, the least inspired you could be. I mean, it's exactly what you think it is in that sense. Like, it doesn't go somewhere with that. It just, I mean, it kind of ends after he's kind of killed everyone. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a shame, but, uh, yeah. you know, hey... I, again, good guy went in over the studios, small budget films, you know, making back their money. That's nice. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I mean, I guess go see it if you're into that kind of edgy superhero thing. I feel like uh, I feel like we have a lot of these. Uh. Yeah, this is your replacement for the gritty DC universe that is now taking the proper <laughs> turn. <laughs> yeah, weirdly, uh, weirdly replacement for Suicide Squad, which James Gunn will also be directing the next one. So he's in. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's see here. Moving on, we got number four, uh, Detective Pikachu. Um, did you see it? No, I haven't been to the theater again. You know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I go to the theater that often. <laughs> I like to ask rhetorical questions on the podcast because you're the only one that knows about Pokemon. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it, there's what else are we going to say? Uh, Bro and I thought it was okay. Yeah, I mean, it, consensus I see is everyone seems to think it's okay. Ryu, like super Pokemon fans really enjoy it, but it's not mm. like a masterpiece or anything. No, no, they look really good though. Those Pokemon. Yeah, that's that's the main selling point of it, and you know maybe I'll just get the same enjoyment out of watching that hour and forty five minute Pikachu dance video that they uploaded. No, I would watch that anyway. Um, <laughs> I I mean that's in the movie too. You could just go watch the movie and get that little bit too. Mhm. But like not for like the whole hour and forty five minutes. <laughs> No, no, just for half of it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, not much to say here, uh, but it's still making plenty of money. I think uh, it was a good good choice for the studio on that end. They made they yeah. picked a really good way to go about that. So we'll get more Pokemon, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And that and that's when they can do even more exciting things, hopefully. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's the best part about it. We're going to get real Pokemon movies. Not We already have about 20 of the animated ones. We don't need more of them. Right, like, this opened the door for, actually, like, this is one of those cinematic universe starters that's going to work and could be actually interesting. Like, you know, you can imagine, yeah. like, the, the the world that Pokemon has, like, if you can tell interesting stories within there, I think that this is a great way to, to start that, and hopefully it does. Yeah, we'll get a lot more. Uh, what do we have uh, before this one? Before? What do we have at number three there? Oh, that's what you're asking. Like, you're yeah, asking sorry. for the next one. You said before. I, I was thinking okay, after, because, yeah. you know, I'm going from the bottom up. What do we have after you. that? We have uh, Avengers Endgame, <laughs> which um, may not beat Avatar now. Okay. Uh, but, I think that's I think that's true. Uh, it's tracking slower and slower every week. It's looking less likely every time we come to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm very surprised by that because I've been fully convinced this whole time that it's going to. Uh, do it we know how might. far away it is? Or uh, I don't think we. I don't think we do. It's hard because we're just looking at the domestics here, so it's this isn't really a good gauge for what it's. That's true. Do. Yeah, I mean we're watching our domestic office, and it already passed Avatar in the domestic. 
Yeah, that's done. So uh, I think it. I think it still might. Uh, I think it just might take longer than people expected. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't imagine it's going away from the box office anytime no. soon. <laughs> I think they might just hold it there until they win it. But the the the, the thing is that Disney already has the first place now. So uh, what do mm-hmm. they care if they don't beat Avatar or if they beat it? I think they might want it just to keep that that publicity around. That'd be a, a nice thing to have. But I mean, you know. Honestly, it's just going to take a couple more Spider-Man trailers to get people going back out to it, right? Right, something like that. I don't know, I imagine that the fan base is dedicated enough to push it there if they really wanted to. Yeah, um, I think it I think it got that enthusiastic push of people going like two, three times at the opening, but uh, with Avatar was interesting because people are going for the tech, so it also got a lot more um, gross due to uh, higher ticket prices. Uh, within like 3D and whatnot, so it's interesting to see uh, kind of what that battle is and what the reality of uh, uh, regular ticket prices are, even though they're higher now, probably. Yeah, that's that's true. I think the the ticket price there with the the big 3D effect had a huge effect on Avatar. I'd, I'd be interested in like uh, a study of that if that was actually the case, but I probably wouldn't read it actually. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't either. I, I want do, the study, but have? I don't want to read it. I just want you to give me the the proof. You know. <laughs> yeah, you want to know if it's true, but we don't need to go into why. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, <clears throat> doing well this week still is uh, John Wick Chapter Three, which uh, um, that's surprising. Did... That uh, uh, I feel like its drop off is almost just matching what the first one did. Yeah, I mean, uh, the first one, you know, it was basically. Nothing like I don't even know if it was. I don't recall seeing a trailer or anything. It could have been a straight to video film for all I knew. Right. Um, it it definitely came out in theaters and was kind of a a little bit of a bomb. But then it uh, it kind of made it back. It's one of those films that gets an audience as it goes along. Right. It really got spread by word of mouth after it came out on on video and whatnot. And mm-hmm. that's where I first saw it, and I was like, whoa! And so, you know, I was really blown away. <laughs> This is really great. The second week of box office is better than the opening weekend for Chapter 2. Wow, that is actually uh, fantastic. By, by one million, actually. Hmm. Because, uh, you know, Chapter 2 was also a pretty big success there. That was, I remember that was a really riveting experience, yeah. going in, waiting in line to see it. And walking out of Chapter 2, I was, I was like, shaking from how exciting it was. And I, I wish that 3 had been the same for him, but it was not quite... We should say that we we did promise the podcast, but uh, a lot of stuffs happened. Some personal issues, so I had to had to kind of account for that and change of plans. Right. Well, it's also a little you know everyone I think has has been talked about you know Wick's been talked about plenty by now. We got a review yeah. up from it from Tyler if you're really interested on thoughts on it. Like maybe yeah, we really great review. Yeah, we might revisit these. I think in the future when like the the trailer for four comes around sometime, but that'll be <laughs> way down the road. Well, it took it's, some of the wind out of my sails finding out right away that there was a fourth one coming. I thought we were going to cover an entire trilogy, and then that turned out not to be true. Believe me, when you went to, if you'd gone to see the film, the wind would have been vigorously sucked out of your sails, realizing right. that oh, this is not complete whatsoever. <laughs> but uh, I, I think we'll be talking about it at least for a few more weeks. So by the time I do get to it, we're going to have plenty more to say about it. Yeah, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it because uh, I know I'm I'm kind of in the the minority here, thinking being a little disappointed by the film and a little bit mm-hmm. down. I did you know talk with a couple of people out in the real world about it, but you know amongst the people on the site here and the general consensus on the internet, I'm seeing people still really love the series here, and they thought three was one of the best yet. 
Uh, 3's total gross, by the way, already higher than the total domestic of John Wick 2, which is fantastic. No wow. wonder we're getting a third or a fourth one. Yeah, no, no surprise here. The series has really escalated considerably over time. Um, well, oh, man. you want you want to talk about number one? I know it sounds no. like really hesitant to. <laughs> no, uh, should we skip it? No, no. I think we at least got to mention what's going on here. All right. All right. At, at number one, uh, unfortunately, to to much to our disdain, we have the live action Aladdin here from Disney. Is that a mistake? Uh, it, you know, I would I would think it is, but I don't know. You know, I guess not. People people really want to see it. I I wonder if like how many of the people are like spite watching it. You know, are seeing it just to a, see how bad it is. How like if it's really that bad? Made a hundred twelve million. Yeah. Uh, well, already. I mean, it's got the the ninety million right now in opening week here over a. 180 million budget. You think it's going to make that back? I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so depressed by this film. Because uh, you did go and see it, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> you you yeah, just sound so deflated, like all of your energy just left as soon as we, we, we got onto this film. <laughs> that sounds right. Uh, I was surprised by how boring it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think if you're going to take something like Aladdin and give that to a director... Maybe they'd be energized or have some reason they want to do it. But I walked out of the theater not having any idea why Guy Ritchie wanted to do this movie. Uh, I mean, money. That's my best guess. I mean, money seems like the only motivating factor. And it's kind of lame because they got uh, some good people to do the roles that might have been interesting in some sense. Like, um, um, especially, what's her name? Uh, Na Naomi Scott? Is that, that's yep. her name, yeah, right? That's her yeah. name. Uh, she's... Very alluring as Jasmine. It could be could have been interesting if you got a better cast around her. Uh, the guy, uh, what's his name, Mansur or something that plays Aladdin. He's he has no motivation whatsoever. Um, and the Jafar is bad. So if the whole battle is their battle, uh, if the whole film is their battle over the lamp, then uh, neither of them have any motivation. It's just flat. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you want to talk about the the big blue elephant in the room? <laughs> um, uh, the movies. At its best when Will Smith is just in his, uh, you know, usual skin. But then when they do the CG thing, it's just as bad as the trailers look. I'm seeing that there's a weird picture here. I'm looking at him to be wearing glasses in this one shot. <laughs> That's and he's got like a pencil behind his, his ear. That's one of those transformations probably, you know, how Robin Williams' character... Well, Robin right. Williams was such an impressionist, right? That he was able to like flip between... Um, like Richard Nixon and like all these TV show uh, hosts, kind of, he was like a game show personality wrapped into a genie. Um, Will Smith doesn't have that range. He he stays. His one character is a '90s Will Smith. That's that's mm -hmm. the his character of the genie. Right, and that's the big thing. I mean, when they originally made the the first Aladdin, they they basically made the film built around the idea of Robin Williams as the genie. That was his yeah. whole comedy style. That was his stand up routine. So it was it was perfect for him in that case, but trying to put Will Smith in it, who basically, even when he is acting, is just playing Will Smith. Yeah, you know that's that's not a very smart choice. Nobody's really acting here. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't call it acting. Um, there's it's there's a Bollywoodness to it that we covered last week. I I understand that it has like some after like examining it. Yeah, it has some Southeast Asian influences to it, but 
but really it's a Midwestern story in my mind. Mm -hmm. Or a mid, uh, mid Middle Eastern, sorry. Right, well, yeah, that's that's what it is. Yeah. Um, oh. I, I think the genie, I think it makes or breaks the movie, right? I, I think that was the whole point. It has to. He's what makes the first one. Like, if you take the genie out of the, the original Latin, it's not nearly as impressive. I feel like you add, like, Robin Williams, and then you add, you know, really fun comedian-like side characters. Like, you even got Gottfried in there. Uh, which right. Is a, oh, it's a Iago. I love him. I yeah. love him as Iago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it means nothing now. Uh, and it, it it's kind of fucked up now when you take the little monkey and he, he's made to look like a human. Like, stop dressing up your monkey. Mm-hmm. It, it it works better in cartoon. Right, absolutely. And that's a shame. Uh, I'm sure you'll be ranting about it in future ones as it sticks around. <laughs> this is going to be away. here forever, man. This, mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about Aladdin until Lion King comes out. Then we're going to be talking about Lion King until Frozen comes out. Well, I, you know what? I might just have to stop doing the podcast <laughs> for that time when Frozen's around. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> I'm I'm probably going to be more enthusiastic about Frozen 2, because at least they're inventing something. Uh, the other thing about this is you know what's going to happen. They didn't change anything. They did two mm -hmm. things. They gave Jafar a backstory, and they gave uh, the genie a love interest, which is really weird. That, what? That's... Yeah. Is she I like mean, a pink it's genie? It's played pretty straight. It's not very interesting. He has a passing love interest in The Handmaid of Jasmine, which isn't very fun. That's weird. Like a human love interest? Yeah. yeah the, I, the implications there are super weird. They are. And the whole thing is, you know, maybe uh, maybe by the end the genie will turn into a human. That will be like the last wish or whatever. That's, you know, that's a story. But... Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's interesting. I, I'm, I look forward to hearing more about it. I love hearing you rag on films. So next week I want to hear more <laughs> about how bad Aladdin is. In the I meantime. Mean, the, let's get the review up sometime. And, and yeah, everyone yeah. can read just how... Uh, angry I am right now. I, yes. My voice doesn't say it. Right, we'll get to it in, in text, and then you'll you'll really see. But you know, let's let's turn back the clock a bit and look back at a an actually fantastic animated movie that it still needs much more love. You know, I see the love grow for this film over time, but you know, I'm ready for more. Yeah, um, our feature presentation, I guess, would be. Um, you want to intro it? Yes, uh, it is the. The 2000 DreamWork film, The Road to El Dorado. I am Miguel. And I am Tulio. And they call us Miguel and Tulio. Seven! Your dice are loaded! I will give you the honor of a quick and painless death. Mm. But not with that. I'll bet we can make that. Two Pesetas says we can't. You're on! You lose. DreamWorks Pictures invites you Holy shit! to join two friends on an incredible journey. We'll follow that trail. What trail? To the magnificent city of gold. El Dorado. Big smile, like you mean it. They actually think we're Miguel and Tulio, the mighty and powerful gods. Hello. Now, I'm going to need my help. What makes you think we need your help? Are you serious? They're bound for excitement. Yeah. Who's the guy? You the guy. Go. Romance. Mm -hmm. And danger. I know you are not gods. You, 
you're not a god which yeah. horribly flopped on you know release but has now i believe it was the only film of dreamworks that flopped ever uh, yeah we were trying to look through it and just looking at dreamworks films like i don't know if prince of egypt was a big success I don't actually, that, that one might be another, but it may have made its money back, but I know for a fact that El Dorado did not, hmm. and that's basically why they stopped doing what they had been doing there, and changed tracks completely, and we got Shrek the next year, and yeah. nothing was the same ever again. <laughs> yeah, Shrek really, Shrek really messed it up, didn't it? Mm-hmm. This is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and get this up front on the table here, because I have huge personal bias because this is my absolute favorite animated film of all time i mean we're saying better than original aladdin not not just like this year's aladdin yes no like better than than any animated film i would say personally but but that's for me like i, w I want to say up front that i understand that there are issues with the movie there are some plot contrivances i pointed out to you when we were watching this that it doesn't make any sense that the natives already speak the same language as they do which, whether it be Spanish or English or whatever the hell, <laughs> yeah, there's um, the the whole the whole plot hinges on the volcano eruption proving their their godliness, and it's just yeah. very convenient. Like so so stuff like nitpicky <laughs> stuff like that. I get that, but I don't care. It's perfect mm. to me. Um, yeah, I mean it's based on like uh, the Rudyard Rudyard Kipling, uh, the man who would be king, right? Is that is right? That what it is? Yeah, um, which is also, it was adapted in 1985 from a John Huston film with uh, Sean Connery and Michael Caine. That's worth checking mm -hmm. out if you're interested in that. Uh, what what film was that? The Man Who Would Be King. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yep. I got you. Uh, so, yeah, it's based off that uh, classic um, British explorer trope uh, where, where they want to go into the jungle. They have, like, a very, you know, it's always very convenient setups for how they have to get there, right? Right. Uh, th this one's definitely, you know, obviously very different. Those are, you know, it's kind of a more serious, you know, story. The kind of the, the white savior story still, whereas this is much more comedic, fun, lighthearted, and you know, it was compared a lot to uh, the inspiration from the, the kind of Bing Crosby, uh, you know, adventure films. The Road to, like, that's where that's where the title comes from. There's a series mm -hmm. of Road to films. Yeah, uh, it's all the uh, Crosby Hope films of like the what was it like fifties that were very big back then. Right, yep, huge inspiration. I believe, if I remember right, there's there's a moment in the film where, like, their reflections in, like, a pool of water or something, mm -hmm. uh, they kind of distort their face to look like uh, Crosby and Hope. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that would make sense. They had, uh, yeah, they had, like, Road to Hong Kong, Road to Morocco, Road to Utopia, Road to Rio, that was the whole thing. Yeah, so this is a nice uh, kind of take on that, a return to, to that kind of thing, but an animated form. And, you know, and you got like, kind of like the musical numbers there as well that, mm -hmm. you know, Crosby and Hope kind of did and all that. But I think it's interesting because there's there's a single uh, song number in the film sung by the characters and everything else is just uh, Elton John. Yeah. Uh, right. I love this film because the white saviors bring Elton John to the savages. <laughs> well, it's a, and the, the music is a, a very beautiful blend of, you know, John's kind of classic style as well as the kind of... The Spanish strings, and you got like flute music in there as well to give it the kind of more native feel. It's a really, you know, smart blend of all of this to create a very kind of authentic uh, experience. There's a lot of cultural inflection upon the music, which I like, like you're saying, uh, along the Spanish strings, and uh, it, it has a very native feeling to it. But uh, 
Also, it has like the mixing of cultures present in the music, which I really like. Yeah, like I said, it's not just like the two elements. They blend they blend them together to create this kind of unique world where they've they've all collided as is with the story. Like the music is very reflective of what's happening in the film. And really good tie in this week because we have a uh, Rocket Man coming out uh, the day before this launches. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, talk about like Lion King in comparison because that's like Elton John's other big film mm. contribution. But, you know, conversely, I think we wanted to go with this one because, you know, well, I, I love it more for one thing, but also because uh, it's the same uh, team, both both Elton John and Tim Rice together again reunited. Like yeah. DreamWorks, I think, was kind of capitalizing off of their success in Lion King and kind of scooped them up for this project. Yeah. Um... And I think that's I think that's important when you're running animation studio, looking at uh, who the talent is, because you have to understand that it's like a whole team effort. It's not like the a live action film where you could just get the right director and uh, he could work with the right actor, and and it becomes a thing. You need like a whole team behind it, and a lot of these are musically led. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, you can see even like I was I was kind of pouring over the credits a little bit as they were rolling, like each character has their own team of people dedicated to mm -hmm. designing and interacting with them, you know, so it's a whole thing, like, and it's teams of teams of teams all collaborating together. And that, but, that really shows to me, because I think the special thing for me about the road to El Dorado is the personality of the lead characters. Yeah. Uh, I think the, I think the main thing is that they animate uh, completely differently by their own rules, right? Like uh, we have a uh, Tulio and Miguel who have their, own separate uh, spirit of animation, and it works for me. Mm -hmm. Well, a hundred percent—that's what the movie is, is gets by on—is that this relationship between the two characters is so strongly built, and their, you know, uh, specific characters are so strong and well defined on their own that it makes some the film just something you want to fall in love with and go with. Like, I can't think of this is one of the best buddy comedy films I I can think of. It's everything I want. And that's why it was so easy for me to fall in love with growing up. Yeah. Um, I love that when we arrive with our characters, they're already in a con, right? Like they're already right. fooling the townspeople. They're, um, what are they doing? They're playing the die game and they have the, yeah, the they're loaded playing dice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they have they... loaded dice. They're, you know, <laughs> the sevens, which I think is, you know, it's very fun. And then they have that, that bit where, Okay, they play it off, they try and calm their way out of the situation with their kind. They're like, you gave me loaded dice? <laughs> it's great because he's, you know, they're they're masters of the art of deception, right? Because they're, the, um, what's his name, is already playing the music, trying to uh, get the distraction in while his right, buddy Miguel is conning is... them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very smart. And then it makes for a really great opening right into the the action sequence right off that it sets the tone really well like right there you got the character set up because you also have them set up just personality wise because miguel's immediately interested by this prospect of a map to to this yeah. world obviously he's in it for this adventure and he's willing to risk all of the the money they have on it. and and tulio is like no 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 no, let's not do that I want I to mean, keep the gold. <laughs> you could start a movie any number of ways, right? Like, you could find a map or you could come across a map. But why not have uh, these guys swindling for a map and showing who they are? Right. It, it perfectly sets up their character and how those characters interact with each other. It's not just, mm -hmm. you know, Miguel likes adventure and Tulio likes gold. Like, you see how they play off one another like that and the conflicts that kind of arise between each other and how they... be. be pick you and argue and you know they have their issues together and i think it's it's this perfect you know setup of character there and just that opening sequence 
And I think they work together the whole film. I mean, it really is a buddy comedy. I think it works on that level. Yes, they, they get each other. You feel they have a history together. And you can see how they, they operate with one another and they understand each other. It's it's just super well. i got to ask. I, I'm curious, Calvin. Yeah. If, if you feel you identify with which one, like who do you identify more with out of the two? Um, probably with uh, Tulia. How do you feel? That's That's definitely, I think, the same for me. You know, I think we all kind of want to be adventurous like Miguel in many ways, but I'm I'm very kind of uh, more reserved on things and economical. Yeah, well, um, yeah I feel like Miguel, uh, he's funny, but he's uh, I, I don't relate to him personally. I don't feel like he's a human exactly. Mm-hmm. I asked, because I watched this, you know, with you this morning as well as my, my fiancé was sitting with her, and she said she's definitely more of a Miguel type, and I'm like, oh, is she? Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me because she is the the kind of more adventurous, willing to go out, and I'm definitely the kind of I'm going to, to stay here and you know hold on to the things I have, and so it works as a perfect kind of yin yang as they do in the movie where we balance each other out. I sh- we should start this over so I could have picked the opposing one to make this more interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm Miguel. Um, yes, that obviously. <laughs> I like to be outgoing. I like to be in the woods. I'm a I'm a Miguel. Sure. <laughs> Uh, I I really like the characters though, and it works well because they they it has such a fluency with the cartoon dynamic that uh, it has the blocky Aztecan um, uh, what would you say aesthetic going from the right. opening shots. Mm-hmm. Well, one other thing I want to say about the characters real quick is that I'm I'm always surprised when I watch the film because like many other films from this time from you know basically that 90s period on of animation you got to get your big name in there. To sell the film, and yeah. Del Dorado has quite a cast of familiar names. Not like not huge like celebrity huge, names, but, but yeah, but, but like fairly C-list, notable names. C-list. Yeah, like what you got? I mean, you got like Jim Cummings doing a great job as Cortez. Oh yeah, and he's great in it as well as a couple other voices. But you got like interesting people, like celebrity, you know, known enough people, not something a kid will know. But like the the main actors, Miguel and Tulio, are played by. Kenneth Branagh and Kevin Klein, and right. it's re- really interesting to me because I'm like I recognize these people. I've seen plenty of stuff with them. I know who they are, but when I listen to the film, I can't see them. I can't envision them, especially with like Kenneth Branagh, which yeah. shocks me because I mean, what do you, like, I mean, I mean, what are you knowing like Kenneth Branagh from like a lot of like Shakespearean stuff and uh, yeah. literary works? Kenneth Branagh is very much that kind of literary kind of director, and he's kind of very uh, mm. like posh kind of kind of person. He comes off very yes. kind of snooty, you know, in almost everything. I'm not a huge Kenneth Branagh fan in general because of his mm. kind of personality, but you don't get that at all because he's so free loving and you know kind of full spirited here as Miguel, and it's it's really interesting to see because I don't see anything similar to that in his whole catalog. No, and he's, uh, um, you might know him, like, more recently from, like, Murder on Orient Express or, like, Dunkirk or something. He's, he's been out there a little more, but uh, yeah. back then, not really. Uh, it's nice to get these actors that you can't really put a face to, because you don't have to imagine Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's, a, and that's such an interesting thing, because, like I said, it's, like, Kenneth Bonner is definitely an actor I can identify mm-hmm. and see, but this role is entirely different, so it's so nice to, to see that. And same kind of thing with Kevin Kline, but, yeah. but to a lesser extent. There's there's some silly things with Kevin Kline I've certainly seen. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I can't, I can't name any of them right now. <laughs> the, the big one that I always think about is he's really fantastic in A Fish Called Wanda. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, that, that's one I'd like to talk about sometime, too. That would be a fun podcast. But 
Yeah, I, as you were saying, I guess get back to it. The other big thing, the real draw of the film, I find, besides the music, as we talked about, besides the characters, is the the design of the film, the artwork going into this. It's stunningly gorgeous. Yeah, it, it comes from like the design of like the Aztec and um, what would you say architecture? It's architecturally like that. A lot of uh, computer design on buildings and boats and stuff, but the characters mm-hmm. are very flat and hand drawn. Right. Well, that's the thing is that there. This was the time where we were starting to integrate a little bit more computer animation into things, and you see that at some points uh, throughout the film where it, you know, kind of in, gets in with the animation. But for the most part, I find it integrates pretty well. Like the whole yeah. end with the boat, you know, chase sequence, like the gold on it's all computer animated, but it it fits in pretty well. Like the only time I really notice it's computer animated is in the very beginning where they land in the barrels and the barrels yeah. get lifted onto the ship. Like I'm like, yeah, that's just a computer effect inserted onto the background. <laughs> <laughs> There's some stuff with like the boat in the ending and uh, uh, when they're moving around objects quickly, you could really tell. But uh, other than that, I really like the hand-drawn parts of it. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful and there's a fantastic usage of color throughout. It's It's got a very vibrant palette, which I absolutely love. It's just a treat to look at. I was reading back through like old critic reviews, and they're like, it's overcolored, and the only things that have weight are the Toy Story style of computer generator effects. I'm like, man, what? you guys really wish for this future we got, didn't you? That's that's such a weird thing. Like that's the the exact opposite of what you would say today. By the way, <laughs> because the computer like, effects look dated. No, this is like New York Times and Washington Post, like real outlets. Uh, uh, they they wish for this future we got with DreamWorks. Uh, it's their fault. Yeah, it sounds like that's just where the push was generally going. Like, it seems like this movie came out right at the end of this this whole era. Because this was also the same year as something like uh, Tarzan, you know? Yeah. Which was basically, um, that was, this marks the end of the Disney Renaissance. You know, from there, they completely changed what they were doing. And so... Yeah. Yeah, I was that's... looking at the 2000 animated movies, and there were some, like, glass stands of uh, hand animation as a result. Like, we had, uh, well, from Disney, we had Emperor's New Groove, and then we had Chicken Run, which is more like a, a practical uh, clay animation, that kind of thing, more than computer-generated effects. But then we right, had Dinosaur well... on the other end. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a perfect example. So, so if we take Dinosaur as the inverse of Rodel Dorado here, the equivalent, let's talk about which one has aged better and which one <laughs> remains more in the cultural discussion. Because I bet you, most people, unless you saw it when it came out, you don't know what the hell Dinosaur even is. No, it really should have been something else. I mean, um, Dinosaur was, like, realistic-looking dinosaurs, but from 2000, so they're not anymore. Yeah, and the the film itself was not terribly compelling or memorable or had good characters or music or anything, really. <laughs> it was flat. I mean, it was just like watching um, CGI dinosaurs move around an environment. It's not Land Before Time. No, not even. It's not even the one scene from Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, you, you could tell that 2000 was a struggling year for uh, animation, a very... Uh, uh, prepubescent like growing period um so to have something so confident as el roda to el dorado when your competition's like digimon the movie and titan ae you know that's mm-hmm. kind of satisfying titan ae i think that's another good good moniker of what happened here because that right. you know it was another old style animation but that was the last film that sunk don bluth studio that year that was it that he was done after that so yeah it, it really shows you how uh on the way out these kind of films were 
Yeah, I mean, after struggling through, like, Anastasia, you could tell that Don Bluth was, uh, he had become the thing that he had always rallied against, and then that mm-hmm. thing ate itself by then. Yeah, and that's a shame. There's there's a whole, I think, interesting story to be told there with Don Bluth's struggle, but... Yeah, maybe um, we'll yeah. come back to Don Bluth as, like, its own podcast someday. But. I think that would be interesting sometime, but certainly, uh... I want to gush more about Road to El Dorado and how much I love it. Because one thing we talked about when watching together here was that the film is paced exceedingly well. Yeah, it knows when to go to montage and how to use a montage to advance the story, I think. Yeah, that was that was one thing we definitely point out. From from essentially the the first montage is kind of the, the best example of this with uh, the Trail We Blaze song. Mm-hmm. And how it takes this time to, to with a quick song here to move through all of these events in a way that allows them to visually tell the story of the journey there while cutting the the time it would take to do that like down considerably like if they just had to tell the the part of the story with jokes and everything and scenes of them journeying through the jungle to find the city i would add another like half hour or so to the film you know (laughs) whereas they could just do it here in a montage and as long as they do it the way they did which is again very visually filled with jokes and, you know, movement, and you get an actual sense of them traveling, then it's perfect. It's perfectly done. I mean, it's very nice. They get the map, they land in a barrel, go on a boat, they arrive there, then they go to their destination after a montage. It's really fast. Right. Well, well, basically, they get there by accidentally washing ashore after right. breaking out of the brig, which is a, you know, a funny sequence all on its own. Um, and... You could, theoretically, if you wanted, just have them wash up to the city, like the city is there. Yeah. But that is boring and uninteresting and shows a lack of, you know, uh, way of, like, like, hiding the city away. Like, it just becomes very convenient. This way, I mean, it's still a convenience that they happen to wash up to the place where the map would lead them to, but they still have to do some work to get there. And it mm. gives them, like, their MacGuffin actually has purpose. The map will actually be used. It's nice because when you go into the city, you could feel you could feel like the glowing of it, like the uh, the very colorized, uh, uh, ritualized uh, history that that feels lived in there. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to mention this on the podcast as well because I point out this to you. One of my favorite jokes in the whole film is something you can easily miss when they first enter the city, and they're kind of amazed, and they all like kind of like together in unison. They say. It's El Dorado, but like if you look, you can see in in the back of the shot there. There's the horses mouthing the words too, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah, you is hilarious. That out. Uh, it's it's hilarious joke. I thought that was it. pretty funny too. Mm-hmm. I, I I think this is an important thing to say about as well that the horse character El Tivo is is the definitive sassy horse character in all of animation. I think this is where yeah. this is kind of the the touchstone of it. This is the one you want to measure by. Yeah, I feel like um, it. Yeah, it's a good point to look at there because uh, after this, you get like the donkey and Shrek. And, mm-hmm. Well, and I also think about like um, the horse entangled is basically just ripping this. This off. horse, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of tangled is paced just like this. You could feel the influence in tangled. Yeah, I think so. Tangled is is kind of a good comparison, but I don't think nearly as good. You don't? No, I'd, not, I'd say not it's at about all. the same for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I. Uh, I think my, my opinion of Tangled has kind of faded over time. I'd have to rewatch it again. I might. I'm going through a lot of animated and Disney stuff right now while I'm watching through, so maybe I'll come around to it again and see. But Yeah, Tangled's really good, but uh, this has a lot of different personality, and it's different from... Uh, uh, I think Tangled's just an accessible Disney movie, and 
uh, this doesn't have to be so accessible. Right. Well, I think that's the thing we talked about is that this is not something you're going to show your daughter right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, she's, we've tried to watch it a couple times. She's gotten through it once, but doesn't really care about it yet. Mm-hmm. Like you said, she's more invested in the, the, the cat, you know, or the, the animal movies or yeah, I mean, just frozen again. <laughs> Lion King has animals. Frozen has songs. Those are the things she needs right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting because something like this, this has songs, but they're, they're different. They're not like songs. They're not they're like not catchy. They're, I, I think a kid's song needs to be about like the enunciation on certain words that they could pronunciate easily. You know what I, I mean? I, there's a science to it for sure, and this one is there's definitely more artistic sensibility to the the Elton John songs here. I think they're plenty catchy still, but yeah. they're not going to be catchy necessarily to a, a four year old. I mean, like uh, Elton John song is different from a Disney song in the sense, like, is it whistleable? Like, can you whistle the song? Then, then it's probably catchy and good. Whereas Disney's like, what's the easiest enunciation you could make? Mm-hmm. I, I guess to to compare, if we want to compare Disney and Elton John songs, we can just look at the Lion King and say, well, you know, what's what works about the Lion King songs? And really, there's only there's only two Elton John songs in yeah. all of the Lion King, and those aren't usually the ones kids will go to. You're looking yeah. at your Akuna Matatas for that, or just can't wait to be king. I suppose right. you're not looking at Circle of Life or Can You Feel the Love Tonight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I I like this about the same as Lion King as well. I, I feel like it's it's pretty equal to some of the uh, better um, late '90s, early 2000s animations. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, I think that's that's huge, phenomenal praise because the Lion King is essentially seen as kind of like the pinnacle of Disney animation. So to consider El Dorado to kind of be on the same level of it, that's, you know, it's high. That's more than most people would give it, I bet. I mean, I don't even know if I'd say, you, you say it's your favorite, right? Absolutely, but I have I have a lot of personal attachment to this. There's stuff like this in Toy Story I grew up watching repeatedly. I mean, I guess hot take, but I don't even think it's the best animated Rudyard Kipling. I think Jungle Book's better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can see, and there's, there's a very classic you know, timeless element of the jungle book as well. But yeah. I don't I don't find it nearly as rewatchable. Like I said, my, my claim that this is the the best thing ever is entirely personal bias and yeah. you know, has so much to do with how much I grew up watching it and love it and then compounded by my later uh individual love of Elton John music as well. Like I have this this soundtrack as well and I listen to it mm-hmm. a lot sometimes. And it's just I don't know, it's it's stuck with me so much and I, I dearly, dearly love it. And I was so excited that when you mentioned talking about it at some point, because I I was absolutely thrilled to do something like this. And I think it's good for us because we like to tend towards like the buddy movies because we're friends, and this is a podcast about movies and friendships. So that's good. Yeah, I mean it's kind of the perfect fit. It's a movie about friendship, and that's kind of the whole the whole tagline of our podcast here. Right, that's our whole Orson Wellesian intro. Right. That's that's the big thing we we want to go for here, and it was nice to to also kind of finally highlight an animated film. I think this is kind of an unexpected one to talk about, but a yeah. much deserving one. You know, is there there's our lots first... of yeah. This is I'm pretty sure our first animated film. Oh, uh, Spider Man. Oh, you're right. We Damn, did that. Oh, I <laughs> forgot about Spider Man. Crap. It's, I'd, <laughs> I'd put this on the same level as Spider Man. So, well, I, I would good. put this considerably higher, but we know that, and I don't. <laughs> uh, I I would like to end this before this dissolves into another Spider-Man argument. <laughs> Which one's better, Spider-Man or um, Spider-Man Two? Uh, you know, I, I've I've said my piece on this, and we've had our 
discussions. We even had a Twitter poll that I, I will not acknowledge as being legitimate, but... But uh, I think that uh, Into the Spider-Verse won the Twitter poll. The people have spoken. Um, so is it El Dorado or Jungle Book for the best Kipling? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it's not like a direct... Is it kind of direct? I don't know if it's credited as being it. I know it's inspired by, but it doesn't look like it's a direct yeah. adaptation of. But I, I think we'll count it. Animated Kipling adaptation. Yeah. Um, I bet you. They're, I they're bet both you. Great. My, my bet on that would be that people would generally say Jungle Books. It is more of a direct <laughs> adaptation so. and a timeless kind of thing. But I, I think the internet has a strong affection for the road to El Dorado now. You can look at there's There's lots think, of GIFs everywhere of stuff from the film. <laughs> I think it because it's so gifable that the internet loves that kind of thing. It has personality and it's gifable and um, it translates well into out of context situations. Did you say gifable? Yeah. Oh no. Oh, we have another That's how you pronunciation. Say it. No, we have another pronunciation disagreement. <laughs> gifable. Gif gif gifable. It's not peanut butter. Yeah, I, I I know. <laughs> I mean. All right, All right. I'll, I'll, I'll concede to this. I think gifable sounds better than jiffable, but jiff sounds better than gif. I, know, I was going to go with your pronunciation, but then jiffable just doesn't work for me. I, I agree with that, at least. So so we're, we're a bit in impasse there. So that's that's it. We, we've started the podcast with confusing pronunciations. I think we should end it with the same. How about you? Yeah. Um, I don't want to go into further <laughs> pronunciations. Um. All right, but so yeah. uh, enjoy your Cannes Festival. Um. Cannes. John Woon Bong. Or John, John who? John who? <laughs> Doctor who? Oh, no. Oh. I'm ending this. Okay. <laughs> All right, goodbye. Stick around. You got-